Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. Uh, as I always tell you, this is a call-in show, so please write down our phone numbers and give us a call. We'd like to visit with you about whatever you want to talk about, as long as it's horticultural related. Maybe plant identification, problems you're having with plants, uh, suggestions for things to plant. Uh, it's kind of wide open. Our phone number is 845-5689. If you're listening outside the area, it's 979-845-5689. And if you want to email, it's gardensuccess, one word, at tamu.edu, T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. So give us a call. Let's talk about what you're interested in. I'm going to mention a few things as we're getting going here, uh, speaking uh, about, uh, you know, listening from outside the area. Uh, I had a, a question come in from Brandon, uh, actually a, a series of questions. He's, he's really created a little... A nice uh, space out in the country. Brandon listens on iHeartRadio app uh, to uh, the GardenLine podcast. And so there are many uh, app servers out there. I, I don't know if that's the right term or not, but, uh, you know, uh, the, you can listen to GardenLine on more than one. So uh, I would encourage you to do that if you miss a show, want to listen to a recorded show. Uh, but anyway, uh, he's out in Tarkington Prairie, which is oh, out west. Gosh, no, excuse me, that's that's way east of um, almost uh, past Cleveland out there, so it's some distance out. But he sounds like he's created a really wonderful place. Uh, he's got all kinds of fruit trees that he's been growing. He's been getting it set up, big garden, all those kinds of things. Uh, but has a few questions about about some of the plants, and I'm going to kind of go over uh, some of those. Uh, the question, one question was, the citrus had been damaged by some the freeze we have had I don't know uh, I guess uh, the 21 or the more recent one uh, and it died back and uh, it started to regrow but he said the the growth looks a little different and, and has a lot of thorns on it and whenever that happens and this could be a tree that didn't freeze down uh, you just see new shoots coming out and through the tree and and they have uh, thorns if you follow them down they're going to be coming from below the graft so unless you are good at grafting and budding and you were to re-graft uh, or re-bud a tree to something desirable, uh, I would say that that's a goner and you would pull it out and plant another one. If there's no buds alive above the graft, uh, you're not going to be able you know, to cut out the dead and have it re-sprout out and become the same tree you originally had. Uh, rootstocks do not produce tasty fruit. They... Um, uh, it's just not not a good idea. So that's that's kind of the bad news uh, on that particular one. Uh, he also had a lime tree, and he's done a lot of things to protect these. Uh, a lime tree that doesn't seem to be making it back. Uh, he he had wrapped it up and piled soil up against the trunk, which is a great idea. And the reason is is even if the top freezes, when you pile soil against the trunk, uh, it, the graft union is underground, and there is some earth warmth that helps it survive even if the top gets killed back. But uh, limes are very cold tender and so uh, if it got cold enough or if the soil piled up wasn't high enough or, or deep enough if you will 
then it could have been lost. But I wouldn't give up on it yet. Cut back everything that's dead. You can scratch the bark to find out how, how far back that goes. Uh, and then just wait. When it warms up, citrus will be interested in possibly growing. And uh, so I think uh, I'd give it some more time because th those are valuable plants. Obviously, you know when you, when you purchased them. Uh, also a question just about grapes, uh, kind of starting off from scratch with, uh, you know, how do you grow, how do you grow some grapes here successfully? Well, uh, there is online at aggie-horticulture.tamu.edu, or you can just Google or whatever your search engine is, Aggie Horticulture, and there's a fruit section, and in there, there is a free publication you can look at online or download on every kind of fruit you can imagine, including grapes. Uh, there are some information on grapes. Uh, grapes are a challenge. Uh, the pruning of them is a little bit complicated. You need a good, strong trellis to grow them on, or an arbor. You could do that. Uh, but grapes are also susceptible to a lot of diseases, and you want to choose your variety very carefully. We do not have many varieties that have resistance to something like um, Pierce's disease, which is a, a plant killer, uh, but there are some. Uh, and so you kind of want to choose those carefully. So I would I would visit with your county extension office if, if you would like and you don't have a horticulturist there. Uh, you are welcome to call the Braz County office and speak to me. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the complexities of, of success with grapes because they are going to require spraying. And uh, you just want to make sure your setup is one that leads to nice fruitful futures instead of frustration. So uh, I uh, think we pretty well covered it, Brandon, but thank you for the email and thanks for listening uh, online through the app. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I want to talk about something going on around town. The Brazos, a Rio Brazos Audubon Society is going to have their monthly Birding 101 walk, and I talk about these all the time, uh, out at Lick Creek Park. And this one is Saturday, March 4th. Uh, so uh, just, just around the corner. Uh, you can go out and meet the folks, learn all about identifying birds by sight and by sound. If you have some binoculars, bring them. Uh, if you don't, they have a few pair of loaners. You, you might be able to get one to, to look through. Uh, and it's out at Lick Creek Park at the Visitor Center. They, they gather at 8.30 in the morning, Saturday, March 4th. So I encourage you to give that a try. I, you know, when I first put out a bird feeder this year, there were no birds coming because I hadn't been feeding over the winter. And it took a while for them to find it. But boy, when they found it, they told their friends. And now it's kind of busy out there uh, at the bird feeder. Um, Anyway, I, I enjoy looking looking at birds, identifying birds. There's some great apps out there too, by the way, um, that you can use for helping identifying birds, collecting birds. In fact, uh, I, for Christmas, I got a feeder from my kids. Uh, it was kind of a group effort because it's not a real cheap feeder, uh, but it has a little camera unit that goes into it. And whenever a bird flies up, it takes a picture and it takes a video and it sends it to your cell phone. Is that crazy or what? Uh, it's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to have to tone it down a little bit because since the birds have found the feeder, I'm, my phone is dinging constantly with the latest uh, arrival to uh, steal my food, bird food. 
<laughs> but anyway, that's kind of cool. I don't know if some of you who are really into it might find those kinds of things uh, of, of interest. I want to go uh, to the emails, and uh, George has emailed uh, about pruning roses. Uh, they're starting to grow, and uh, should he still uh, trim them? If the roses were not pruned in the winter, I would go ahead and do it. Uh, it's best to do it when they're dormant, and one reason for that is those roses are using stored energy to push out the new growth because there's not a, a nice leaf cover to provide carbohydrates for that. So if you let them do that and then you prune them back, then they have to do it again. And, and you're not going to kill the rose bush, but you, you should go ahead and get it done. It'll be less stressful uh, for them, George. And uh, if, it, if they're shrub roses, you can shear them or you can hand prune them. Uh, but they need all roses need to be cut back a lot. And uh, that, that's especially true uh, of the hybrid teas, of course. But when we talk about shrub roses, which is my favorite kind of rose, uh, something like, well, I'll use an example that's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Uh, that's the knockout rose. That's the cherry red blooms and the, almost a burgundy green foliage in the new growth that you see all over town everywhere. Knockout will get to be a six-foot bush, or at least that's what it, I've seen it go to. Uh, but usually you want to keep them down around knee to waist high, maybe waist high being the goal. So you're going to prune those back a lot. And then as they begin to grow, when they finish a flush of blooms, you would shear them again and it would bring more growth. And, and uh, so it also helps keep them a little more compact. Uh, but if you just leave them year after year unpruned, they get they get pretty large. Uh, something about roses, you know, this is true of a, a lot of a lot of plants. Uh, it, in the uh, in the case of roses, it's definitely the case. And, and a perennial like salvia, for example, uh, both of those kinds of plants they bloom on the ends of new shoots. So if you look at a rose bush and you got a shoot, uh, you're gonna your flowers are all going to be at the end of shoots. Uh, and so, what if you have a few shoots? You have a few flowers. But when you shear them, and I don't know, let's say six shoots becomes 12 or 14 shoots, then you have 12 or 14 blooms that can happen. And that's true with salvias, too. They're a, they're a terminal blooming species. And so, don't be afraid to shear those back. I, I was out uh, visiting uh, someone who had salvia gregii, or it's also called cherry sage, uh, also called autumn sage, which I hate that name because we have other sages that only bloom in autumn and cherry sage blooms all year. Uh, but anyway, they are a subshrub, and if you don't prune them, they get kind of woody and twiggy, and they always bloom. So no one wants to cut them back because there's blooms on it. But the, the big spring flush of blooms on Salvia gregii, uh, once it kind of plays down a little bit, shear them back, maybe by about a third. And uh, by the way, I, I shear mine at, in the winter first, and then they come out with new growth, have all the blooms, and it starts to wane a little. I'll shear them again. And I'll shear them again in August uh, for better fall blooms. Uh, it will not hurt them, and they will look more compact. They will have more blooms, and you'll have a lot of fresh foliage instead of that old semi-shrub. I call it a sub-shrub. Uh, but that's a good way to prune uh, those salvias. Uh, Budlia is another example. It's called butterfly bush. Uh, Budlias are another terminal bloomer that as you shear them, uh, they produce more shoots and more blooms. Uh, let's see, I'm going to go, first of all, our phone number, 
845-5689 or by email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Going back to emails, uh, Beth emails about uh, some uh, brambles. They have wild dewberries on a property that they would like to get rid of. And then in the home garden, they've got uh, some tame blackberries and they're kind of getting a little bushy and they would like to do some trimming. So let's take those one at a time. Uh, the wild dewberries, uh, you can't just brush hog over them or mow over them. They're going to come right back out of the ground with a vengeance. Uh, they're able to sprout from some of the large lateral uh, rhizomes uh, under the ground, the, or the roots, if you will. Uh, and the best way to get rid of them is to use something that translocates down into the plant. And uh, products that uh, say they're for poison ivy are available on the home market. Uh, they contain a, an ingredient called Trimac, and Trimac is, is something that will translocate down and kill them. The best time to do that is late in the season when we're getting ready to go in fall, but it's still warm enough where there's some growth and, and vigor in the plants. Uh, you knock them out then going into fall and it's even more effective, but you can do it now. Now, whenever you're using a product like that, you want to be careful because uh, it is a plant killer. And so it doesn't kill all plants, uh, but it, it's not something to be misused. You do not need to drench plants with, with any herbicide like that. Uh, you just want to wet the foliage. So a, a, a light spray, if the wind is at all blowing, don't do it because it's going to drift onto something desirable. Uh, but uh, I would recommend something containing Trimac uh, for getting rid of the blackberries and be ready to have to do it more than once. As far as your tame bl blackberries, uh, those are the upright. Uh, the, the dewberries uh, are, the, are a trailing type of bramble that basically crawls along the ground. Uh, many of you have gone out and picked dewberries, I bet, before. Uh, the blackberries that we grow are upright. They have strong upright canes. But the problem with them is that, at, well, I shouldn't call it a problem. Here's how they grow. One year, the, a shoot comes out of the ground and grows up and it goes through winter. And the second year, it fruit or it blooms and fruits and then it dies. And so you need to get those out of there after they fruit. If you have a blackberry cane coming out of the ground that has fruits on, fruit on it, it will not fruit again. It, it, it's done its thing. The new shoots coming up, you can tip them. I usually tip mine about chest high, and they will produce side branches so that there's room for more fruit uh, after they go through winter bloom and, and next year's crop comes. Uh, but I would go in there and it you know, good good uh, leather gloves on your hands. Uh, be careful, but get all the dead stuff out, and that'll clean it up a lot. Some people put a little trellis on there to attach the canes to, so they don't just flop over in the roads. Uh, but uh, that that is what I would I would recommend on those blackberries, and you can get them going again uh, in just a season or so. Well, let's let's stop and go to the phones. The number eight four five five six eight nine, and let's talk to Dan. Hey, Dan. Hi, Skip. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. I have a, I have a question about our water uh, here in Brazos Valley. Um, so I have read and learned uh, that water coming straight out of the tap includes high levels of bicarbonates, chlorine, and maybe chloramine. 
and uh, people recommend as to not kill soil biology to let the water stand for 24 hours to evaporate off the, some of those things. Okay. Is that worth it? <laughs> yeah. One, one thing uh, I'll just add to your list of local water concerns for plant growers is sodium. Uh, there's there's that's why it, when you wash your hands it feels like you can't get the soap off if you're from an area with hard water uh, that's what's going on and sodium over time builds up so just a occasional watering is no deal but the folks that for example they have the sprinkler come on on their lawn three times a week year after year after year you're getting a sodium buildup and that's a bad thing uh, as far as the uh, bicarbonates that uh, is also an issue especially with certain plants not not all plants are equally sensitive to that. Uh, but when it comes to the chlorine or chloramines, now I'm not a water quality expert, and perhaps, uh, Jennifer Nations, if you're listening and would call in, you can do a better job on that one than I can. But the older chlorine types of things, which bleach would be an example, you mix them in water, but then they sort of gas off, and it doesn't stay around. That's why if you have a goldfish bowl, you used to pour some water in a bowl, let it sit overnight, or I believe that was long enough, and then you can put your goldfish in. Uh, the chloramines may be a little more persistent, but I really need a water expert to tell me about that one. Yeah, so I was wondering for sort of indoor plants and seedlings that you're starting, is this a thing that you do? <laughs> or I, I use... a waste of time? Well... I mean, I typically use, like yeah, I use the, I, we, you know, we have a water filter kind of thing that I use. Uh, but if you're just starting some seedlings and you don't overdo it, uh, you can use city water and start seedlings just fine. It, the seeds are going to come up and they're going to be fine. Uh, but I just like to use that. I wish I had rainwater. It, currently, I don't have a rainwater system on the house, but that's the best water of all. And um, I believe our pH is high, correct? in this area or is it low i can't remember well it it's it's higher due to the sodium but i okay. exactly the level of it again i, I would yeah. we would need to ask jennifer nations which who by the way has a, a show on yeah. on this station called waterfall wednesdays uh so you might you might try her on that uh ph is a. uh it's a very i'll say it's a variable thing what i mean is that you can have well, let me do this. If you take pure distilled water and you measure the pH and then you take a straw and blow your breath in that pure distilled water, you'll watch the pH go up from the carbon dioxide in your breath. And so that is not a pH to be concerned about because it's not buffered. It's You put a drop of lemon juice in the glass of water and I mean it shoots back down again. But there are sometimes are, are enough contents in the water to where the pH is a little harder to move down. But even at that, I wouldn't worry about it. And if you're talking about changing the pH of your clay soil in the yard, that's probably a hopeless cause. Even though there are things we can lower pH with, it's just, it's not practical in most cases to try to do that. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering if I should use pH down or something like that to get it more neutral. But I imagine your answer is going to be not really worth it. No. I wouldn't worry about it. Um, you know, you're, this is just a hobby or just playing. And, and uh, I mean, if you yeah. had a greenhouse and you were producing high-value crops, poinsettias or whatever, then we would talk a lot about water quality and what we might want to do. But I, I wouldn't worry about it. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. And I'll probably bug Jennifer as well. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Let's see. Our phone number, 979-845-5689. And now we're going to go talk to John. Hello, John. Good morning. I have a question. I'm in the process of, of turning all my raised beds right now, you know, putting the, getting the mulch and everything into the soil. And I, and I noticed, you know, in those beds, in some of them more than others, uh, there are a lot of roots from last year's plants. Yes. Uh, should I make an effort to pull those out or they just, or they'll just go away? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you two answers to that. Uh, if you if you had a disease problem like fusarium wilt or, or verticillium wilt or something on your tomatoes or nematodes, you know, getting the roots out would, would be good. It's not going to make the disease go away, but it just reduces it a little bit. But for most things, uh, you just leave them in. Uh, I know our traditional way of gardening is you pull out the plants by the roots and you run rototillers up and down the row and beat the soil to within an inch of its life uh, and then grow in it. Uh, now we're moving more toward a gardening that's uh, somewhat of a no-till like some of the farmers have ad adapted as well. Uh, and at my house, uh, even a, a, a corn patch down a row, I'll just cut them off at the ground and implant around them. A plant beside the row or something like that uh, because those roots are opening up panels or channels in the soil and they're decomposing uh, and that is that uh, root tissues or things that a lot of the microbes that decompose organic matter are going to get real busy with and so you know it's not the end of the world to pull them up we've been doing that forever but there's no need from a, a horticultural plant standpoint oh, okay i haven't i, I didn't make an effort to pull roots out of those plants a lot of them i did just cut off mm -hmm. uh but but i i, I till I, I don't till it with a tiller i, t I have a spading fork that right. i use and because uh I'm, I'm really also trying to incorporate the decomposing mulch and whatnot that's been laying on there right all so I, I, I thought it would be a good idea to get that into the soil. And that's fine. There's no problem with doing that. When we're talking about a garden bed, uh, that you can do that. You can incorporate uh, some of it like that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that would be a problem at all. It's a little more work to use a spading fork, but um, I don't know. Maybe not. I've, I've banged my teeth loose with a good old tiller <laughs> on hard hard clay soil so maybe. i'm not sure how many more years i'm going to be able to do that with a spading fork but right now it, i can do it and i and i get down about a foot so it, it yeah I think it does it some good well there. when you're done with the spading fork years uh there's a device called a um oh my gosh it's got big strong prine tines that go in the ground, not like a spading fork. I mean, these things are really strong. And you stand on it. It's got two handles, one on each side of you. And you wiggle it in the ground, and then you just lean back and crack the soil open. Uh, huh. and, and I can't believe I can't say the name of the tool. I'll give it just a minute here. But you never stoop over for that. You just break open the soil a little bit. And then you, when you spread stuff over it, a lot of it's going to fall. I usually put compost down first and then do that. Uh, and uh, it just sort of falls in the cracks that you make as you go. Uh, yeah. and so that would be the next step uh, <laughs> when, uh, when spading days are done. 
Will I recognize it at Home Depot or Lowe's or something? Uh, you're going to have to probably buy it online. Those uh, are, are not are not real common. Broad Fork is, is the broad name. Fork. Broad Fork. And, and there are some out there that have little round, skinny tines. Don't do that. Uh, if, if you see tines that look like a, a thick piece of metal, you know, that... Um, it would be an agricultural kind of plow level metal, uh, then that that's what we're looking for. Broad forks. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there there's a number of brands out there, and I don't recommend brands specifically, but I got mine from Treadlight, and Treadlight I've not been uh, disappointed with it. Uh, but uh, that would kind of help you find what I'm talking about. Okay, and, and I'll, I'll can, look that. I'll, I'll find that. And yeah. What Mary wants to know how hard a bottle brush is. Ours took a pretty good licking this winter, and she's she thinks she's still got live material. But yeah, well, bottle brush is not that hardy. I would consider it a borderline plant for here. Uh, certainly, February twenty one took out a whole lot of bottle brush. Uh, this freeze this year seems to have done more damage than. I would have expected, but um, it, I could see bottle brush dying back. Hopefully, you've got a little bit coming out of the bottom. You know, and in future years, when you have something like a bottle brush or you're kind of worried about it being a little extra tender, just throw in some mulch or soil up around the base as, as high as you can. Just think of it as a giant anthill, you know, up around the base. Uh, would help protect it. So if it does freeze back, then it'll come back quickly as, as it all that strong root system pushes new growth. Okay. Skip, I really appreciate a guy just banging on the door. i got to go. All but right. I really appreciate your help. Thanks. Take care. Hey, John. Yep. Uh, tell him to listen to Garden Line. I will do that. Thank you. Okay. All right. I meant Garden Success. <laughs> you know what? What an awkward, what an awkward mistake. All right. We're going to go to the phones now and talk to Stacy. Stacy, welcome to Garden Success. How are you? <laughs> Good. Um, I think the thing you were looking to say was a broad fork for the gentleman before me. Yes, yes. I finally stumbled <laughs> upon it. Thank <Okay>. you. <laughs> um, my question for you is sweet corn varieties for this area, if you have any recommendations, because I tried to look up online on the Master Gardeners and some of those ones you can't find anymore, some of the recommended ones. I was mm -hmm. looking particularly for mainly a yellow one more than a bicolor that has like yeah, doesn't have to like be picked the day it gets ripe. You know, right. has some good field. Right. Um, the right now the name of a variety, a particular variety, is escaping me. I've been to some of our local stores, like producers, for example, and they'll have a lot of varieties that do well here. A lot of options that you can get right from there. If you're going to order things in, you know, kind of a mail order uh, type of thing, then you're probably um, Gosh, uh, silver. Well, I've queen. had good luck with yeah. I've had good luck with incredible the last few years, but producer doesn't have it in yet. And I usually try to get them in the ground mid March. I got you. Warm enough. I got you. Yeah, you would have to you'd have to go to a mail order then probably for that. I'm trying to think of some of the ones that I've grown. Uh, Merit was always a good one. G uh, ninety uh, is a, is a good one too. Uh, okay. But anyway, it depends on what you want. You know, in sweet corn, we've got regular sweet corn. Yeah. <laughs> and then we've got uh, an extra sweet kind of gene that they some varieties have, and then there's a super sweet, and those are just like sweet as all get out. Yeah, I like a little bit of flavor with mine, besides just sugar. That's what I, that's <laughs> what I hear from people that try the super sweets is they uh, they're missing that carbohydrate, <laughs> I mean, a uh, starchy kind of component. Yeah, I, I grow the incredible. Usually, I had someone tell me one time I gave them some, and they're like. 
it was the best corn they've ever had, minus what they got in Nebraska. It was the sixth best corn. So oh, okay. Like, they really like that incredible variety. So. Do you think they know how to grow corn in Nebraska? I didn't, I didn't figure <laughs> they knew how to grow corn up there. <laughs> all right. Well, good. Okay, and, yes. and that's about all I got because I think the normal questions – I can't, like, I got stinging nettle that I just have to basically hoe out, I think, every year and just comes back every year. Yeah, that's one. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, some of those nettles, uh, do, they do have an underground storage. And I don't know, I, I don't know how you feel about using a herbicide on them, but uh, something broadleaf that translocates would, would save I've you. I've tried that. everything on this stuff. I've tried 2,4-D, it just comes back. Oh, really? <laughs> Oh, yeah. This thing is well, bad. I, I may have to look into that. <laughs> Off the top of my head, I, I don't know the best thing to recommend for them, but I can tell you that just hoeing them off is a is a problem. <laughs> they just come okay. back. Well, the freeze helped me a little bit this year, that, that little December freeze, because it kind of knocked them back because they were already starting to come up, but they're still there. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, good luck with it. Now, when we when we hang up, I'm going to think of five sweet corn varieties I should have told you. So. <laughs> So anyway, All right. I went Thank online. So Our master gardeners have a website that uh, used to have the uh, planting guide and a list of varieties that were recommended on it. And we had a, a, a website problem. It got, kind of got hacked. And so we're, re, we're rebuilding and fixing things. And uh, it's not quite there yet. Yeah, well, I did find the edibles. If you do a Google search, it'll actually show the edibles. And I found the link that way to get to, like, the variety guide, which is what I was calling that because that's what I looked at this morning. Okay. I could kind of find it a back way. And I was like, well, I can't find this one. I can't find Legend. I can't find Okay. You know, that's the, I think that's they're just the older thing. Varieties. It's a thing with varieties. It, they're, sweet corn is one example, but tomatoes are the worst. I, every year I there's 50 new tomatoes, you know, and, my gosh, how can you keep up with uh, you just have to pick the ones you like over the years and let that become your your standbys, go-tos. I grow about 10 or 12, and I usually throw a new one in every year. And then just, you know, one that I didn't like as much, I take that one out. So. Well, then you, you just need to call in the show, and after you, know, after you get in the season, tell us what you think. Because I'm always interested in hearing what local gardeners are having and experiencing. You know, we in AgriLife, we have our lists, and we do research and trials and things, but there is no way we can test all the varieties out there of all the plants. And so... Well, I'll tell uh, you one that did really well last year that's a bi, kind of a bicolor. Mm-hmm. It's one of those new, what they call them, it's more of a marketing name. They call them Hylooms. Okay. They look like hybrids, but they're the heirlooms. It was the Ginfiz. I have not grown Ginfiz. It was huge. They were like <laughs> over a pound each. Oh, but my they had really gosh. good flavor. So they were, yeah, they were huge. I'm growing them again this year. So, and then there's a couple other varieties in those high loom categories that I'm playing with a little bit. So. Very interesting. Well, yeah, that's uh, huh, Jen Fizz. I wonder where they came up that name for a tomato. Uh, well, no, because the, the whole thing is like mixology drinks. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they got to find out some, some theme, right? I'm just thinking that you have a party at your house and you ask someone, would you like a Jen Fizz and you bring them a tomato? <laughs> They're not going to feel like they were well served. <laughs> True enough, but those highland seeds aren't cheap. They're about over a buck a piece. Oh my gosh! Okay, <laughs> all, all right. right. Well, have fun. <laughs> all right, thank you. Bye. Bye bye. All right, our phone number is nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine or by email garden success at tamu dot edu garden success at tamu edu had an email come in from Randy uh, about a plant ID and you've seen this plant around town it's got long or long upright uh, leaves that come right out of the ground there's not a trunk to it at all 
and maybe they get about from somewhere between knee to pocket high, depending on the kind you have. It's called cast iron plant. And cast iron plant is literally as tough as cast iron. It puts up with shade. It's a dark green color, even in the shade. Uh, and it puts up with a little bit of sun. You can grow it in a lot of sun, but it you got you to gotta kind of water it and take care of it there. It scorches a little bit. But it is a very tough plant. But here's the thing. When you have coal damage to it, when the leaves get ratty, maybe some insects or other things going on. And as an individual leaf gets older, maybe it was last year's leaf and now we're this year, uh, it starts to look ratty. And uh, you'll see that all over town. People don't prune them enough. So a cast iron plant, I would sometime in early February, ideally, you can do it now, it won't hurt them, uh, but cut it all back to the ground. Now you can just cut out the ugly leaves that's going to be a tedious job or you can just essentially cut everything back to the ground and it will come out fresh and new in the spring and look good. Sometimes I'll even cut them back uh, in late August, early September, uh, because well really late August, and uh, because they're looking so ratty after the summer and the, here comes the fresh growth and it looks beautiful going into the wintertime. It's an evergreen, it's a tough plant, and uh, they say familiarity breeds contempt. And I think there are a few really good plants that are just maybe too familiar to people so they don't get very excited about them. Uh, another example of that is Purple Heart. Purple Heart, uh, uh, Cetricia pallida, uh, is a, a ground cover that you would look at it and say, that looks like it's kin to Wandering Jew or some one of those plants. Uh, but it's, it's big, big purplish leaves, especially in the sun and it's been around forever uh, and people don't get as excited about it uh, and but i think that purple heart has a really good place in our landscapes if you've got a place that gets a, a spot that gets enough light uh, it will do well now it'll survive in a shade but it just won't have that pretty color and and everything the only thing about purple heart i would tell you is once you plant it it's going to stay there uh, it will gradually vine out and you want to trim those back you can cut it all back scrape it back to the ground and it'll come back out of the ground again uh, but uh, if you ever want to move it you're going to have a chore because all the little pieces you leave in the ground are going to pop back up so you get to dig two or three times trying to get it all uh, but pick a pick a spot it breaks up the sea of green in our landscapes that's that's what I'm talking about you know but especially by summer you know green grass green shrub green tree and, and where's the color? Well, Purple Heart is a foliage color that holds up through the season, and it would be a good way to, in a bed, go from the grass to the Purple Heart to some, if you have to go back to green or, or to something else, uh, and just add color to the landscape. Okay, let's go to the phones. Our number again, 979-845-5689, and we're going to talk to John. Hey, John. I, I want to ask you about corn. You were you were speaking with the lady about corn. Yes. And, and Mary's got six different corns, and I I just want to read the names off and tell you. Would you tell her which one's the best? Oh boy. She's got peaches and cream, silver queen, bodacious, candy, trucker's favorite yellow, and C seven ninety. I don't know the last two. Uh, I would probably go with bodacious from that list. Uh, the candy corn is, the, the super sweets are, are called SH2, that's the gene. Candy corn is an EH corn. It's not a true super sweet, but it is, it's sweeter than regular sweet corn. Uh, 
I, I think I'd like the bodacious. Peaches and cream is also good. And if I'm not mistaken, the peaches and cream has a yellow and white kernels. Is that right? I think you're right. Yeah. I have grown it, but I just can't remember specifically. Uh, that's that's my memory of it. Uh, but I grew. I think I grew bodacious last year or the year before, uh, and it, it did well, too. Uh, what is the longevity of the seeds? Do they last more than just the year you get them? Well, storage is, is going to be important, but corn is not one that you just want to store forever. Uh, when you talk about a field corn, that's a plump, very starchy kernel. Think, think about what they sell for deer food and stuff right. like that. Uh, and, and so that, uh, it, it sprouts better in the soil and so on. When you go all the way to super sweet, there's not as much of the starch. There's, it becomes a shriveled little, almost translucent seed. And so if you plant it too early in cold soil, it doesn't do as well. And I don't think they hold up as well either uh, in terms of years of storage. But uh, I, would, I would just have to get online and, and check that for corn. But, but storage conditions are, are a major factor. You know, out in a barn, a barn that gets 200 degrees in the summer versus in your refrigerator, uh, it, it's a world of difference in how long it'll last. Right. Well, we, we certainly store them inside in the cool, but, but mm-hmm. we don't. I don't think we put it in, I don't even in a refrigerator. Okay. Well, you you can use a lot of refrigerator space up. Uh, my wife wants us to get another refrigerator because half of it is my seeds uh, right now. So I, I, I think I, I should do that probably because I don't want to lose my refrigerator space. <laughs> I don't want to get evicted. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah, I appreciate All right. it. All right, John. Thank you for the call. Bye. or by email gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu let's go to those emails Uh, let's see I talked about Randall and the cast iron plant Um, oh we had a, a question come in from Kenton Kenton's putting up a greenhouse and um he's question is which way do we orient it what's the best way to orient it it's got doors on each end Uh, and so you know if you were as far south as we are uh, things like do you do you plant rows east south east west or north south and stuff or or it's going to be a little different than further north where the sun is even even lower in the sky especially in the cool season Uh, But our sun does travel kind of low. So think about how you can get good sun to that. If the ends of the greenhouse are solid, you mentioned they had a door, but they they may allow a lot of light through anyway. Uh, If they're solid, then I I probably would uh, consider that when I orient it because the summer sun starts, of course, it comes up in the, the east and goes in the west, but it's more southeast to southwest as it travels low. And that's greenhouse season. So, of course, I'm, wait a minute. I said summer. I meant winter. Uh, in the summer, sun goes overhead, and sun's going to shine on every side of everything in that. But in the wintertime, traveling low, uh, it, it's, it's not going to go directly overhead. And so you kind of want to think about the direction the sun is coming. I wouldn't worry about it a lot otherwise than that. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's the case as far as, uh, you know, making suggestions. If I saw a picture of the greenhouse, that might be a little, I might, might have a little something to add on to that, but I think that would be good. I made a greenhouse one time out of uh, PVC, uh, big old gray 
PVC, not the white PVC. The sun turns that brittle really quick. But the kind that's that's made uh, for resistance to sun breakdown, and we put some big arches over it and put the plastic on it and stuff. Uh, it, it's not real simple to do, but you can do it, and it made a nice little greenhouse. And so that that is a good quick way to get into a greenhouse before you have time to buy something nice. Okay, our phone number 845-5689 and let's uh, let's go to things going on around town. We're about the end of the month here. Uh, on Tuesday, February 28th, so five days from now, uh, the Brazos County Master Gardeners are going to be having a program by Charles Pirillo of the Society for Louisiana Iris Preservation Project. Uh, and so they're talking about preserving some of the endangered irises. Did you know that there's native irises in Texas and in Louisiana, especially, especially the Louisiana iris, the kind that likes to live in kind of a bog-like environment? Um, but anyway, he's going to be speaking at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 28th, and the Master Gardener uh, Association and our Extension Office are located at 4153, um, uh, excuse me, wrong, wrong, um, wrong number. It's at County Park Court out by the tax office. So if you've got University to the east, kind of turn in there toward Copperfield direction, and that's that's where our office is going to be. Hopefully, if you got property, you pay property taxes, and so when you pull in there, you've pulled into our parking lot as well. So I hope you can join them. I think it'll be a very interesting talk. Louisiana irises are pretty. They're just beautiful. Uh, I, I love them. And, you know, they don't have to have standing water or anything to grow. Uh, they're tolerant of, of poor drainage. One of the uh, smaller group of plants that will take that. Most plants don't like that. Uh, but it, it can dry out a little bit uh, and just occasionally water them and everything. They love the they love a very bright shade, a dappled shade, and they come in many beautiful colors. And uh, I just think, uh, you know, it this would be a good example of, of turning lemons into lemonade. You've got an area in the back that's low and wet and the clay's not draining well and the light isn't as good as you would like for a lot of plants that need a lot of light to bloom and so on. Uh, and you could turn that area into a beautiful little Louisiana iris area and be quite, quite attractive. So anyway, uh, that's Tuesday, February 28th, 7 p.m. out at our office on County Park Court in Bryan, next to the tax office. Our phone number is 979-845-5689. And we are about to go to the phones here, and we're going to take a call from Catherine. <laughs> Catherine, how are you today? I'm doing well. A little bit sneezy. It's such a beautiful day. Um, you thank go. you for talking about the irises being Good. special that way in the meeting next week. I have a question about junipers. I'm allergic to them, but I love them. Yeah. But when I see them grow, every now and then it seems like some come up from the root. You know, not like a rhizome, I guess, but, you know, another plant will come up, but not very often. How, how do junipers grow? Okay. Well, if you see a juniper coming out of the ground, it, it sprouted from a seed. Um, the junipers... I never noticed the seeds. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how they got there, but um, uh, junipers 
are uh, arborvitae, uh, pine trees, all of those evergreens that are either needled or have the scaly leaves like a juniper, uh, they can't put new growth out past where there are living needles or li living leaves where the new buds will be. So if you were to prune a juniper, let's say prune it like a hat rack, you know, cut all the branches off, cut all the green off, uh, a, no a normal plant would re-sprout everywhere from every cut end. Junipers can't. So if you cut a juniper off at the ground, you can't have a root sprout come up. Don't do that. Yeah, don't don't do that. And, you know, Christmas tree growers le learn that because, you know, we, we think a Christmas tree needs to be shaped like a Christmas tree, right? And as they shear them to provide that kind of tree for us, if they cut too far back, that's going to be a hole that never fills up. And they just pull the tree out and plant another one. Mm. Yeah. Well, I thank you. I never read that. Yeah. So far. So I appreciate you telling that, me. That's what makes it such a tragedy. And it's why I don't recommend like Italian cypress and some of these tall, beautiful, looks like you're at a Mediterranean villa, uh, uh, evergreens like that, is bagworms will get on them and eat the leaves off and there's a hole. Uh, needle blights will get on them and kill the branch back and they just can't re-sprout and it ends up you spend all this time growing a big, beautiful thing. Now, our na our native cedars, the uh, eastern red cedar, is is very resistant to a lot of those things, but it can still get the bagworms. But uh, you're right about the allergies. I, I was in Austin for 15 years, just about, and uh, cedar fever over there is a dreaded part of the year for a lot of people that are sensitive to it. Uh, because they have the ash juniper, which is essentially just a, a variant of our eastern red cedar. Uh, and the the uh, junipers here, I've noticed some, some uh, little, um, they're about to produce some pollen. Uh, I, I just don't know really what to say because there there's so many out there that you planting or not planting one is not going to make a big difference. But if, if everybody planted a whole lot more on every bit of property, yeah, then we'd, we'd have more of a problem. Well, for you to tell me about the eastern red cedar gives me something to look for. Yes. I appreciate that. Um, I love I love our junipers. Uh, they had a hard time last year, and I'd say 50% of them dried out and got bronze. And mm -hmm. I feel like they just don't even have a chance of coming back. Yeah. So are, are you talking, you are talking about the eastern red cedar, the wild one, right? Well, you've given me the name that I will look up. Oh, okay, um, at, okay. At my parents' house, they have the low-growing type, which are the ones yeah, that yes. suffered from the drought. Yes. But then the tall ones that get up kind of like Christmas trees. Yes, um, yeah. They've got some uh, bronzy buds of pollen about to bust open. Okay. But I just never understood how they... Uh, create seeds because I've never seen you know they don't have pine cones well they have a little gray berry on them uh, and and they're separate male and female plants oh. so so you may not have berries on a particular plant uh, it's, it's like yopons uh, male yopons don't produce berries females do that's yeah, true of a lot I of hollies that is yeah. Let me let me make a, a let me ask you a question, Catherine. Or if I may, are you living like out on property, or are you living more in a suburban neighborhood, or what? Or what? Suburban in town. Okay. There's just a, a nice tall juniper that has a lot of bronzy buds, so I guess that means it's a male. Uh, yes, I guess so. If you're seeing the low pollen about to come out, yes, that would be true. Uh, the thing, the reason I asked that question is. 
in town, you can start them off in a little row and they look like little Christmas trees, but in time they get huge. And if you drive through Bryan, uh, look at some of the, the nice old neighborhoods deep in the heart of Bryan, you'll see junipers that are just large trunks and all the foliage is way up high and, and they're, they're trees. Uh, the Kyle House has some junipers, uh, if you ever ever seen that place Kyle House has them and so I've gone down by William Joel Bryan Parkway and there's the park in the middle there that has some big ones absolutely they're there so the reason I say that is planted in a suburban lot uh, early on you have that form but later on it's a very big tree and so that may be a reason not to people that live out on property maybe you live on a country road and and the the cars go through and dust is blowing off the road onto your place and so on they'll plant them down the road on, to make a living windbreak a living windbreak fence and just to slow that down a little bit and if you're doing that i would recommend buying what's called conservation bundles uh, and i know i'm not I'm, I'm talking to you about a neighborhood thing, but people are listening who have property, so I'm kind of talking about both of them. Uh, but you can buy conservation bundles if you if you uh, email me at the at the extension office or the station here. Uh, I will send some links. But th but that's done. You need to order them early because they sell out. And you're buying plants for I don't know a dollar a tree or something or less than a dollar a tree sometimes. But um, well, that sounds really really good because we got to conserve the soil. Wind erosion is a big deal for all kinds of things for pollen and well uh, dehydration. All right. Well, any other any other matters or did that cover? Well, thank you, Skip. I you you've gotten me to realize that. We've got a male tree here, and it's not going to make any little trees. Yeah, you can name it. You just have to name it George or Edward or something I think like we'll that. call him Harry. Okay. He's, he's very nice, big and tall, like you said. They get to be really big. <laughs> yeah. All right, Catherine. Well, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. I appreciate your information. Have a good day. Mm, take care. Our phone number is 845-5689, 979 Five six eight nine, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Uh, so let's go. I want to go back to things, kind of the around town thing. We're kind of at the end of the month, and I don't have the, I don't have the March list. Well, I got some March things available to me. Uh, let's see. I just want to remind you that uh, Jennifer uh, from the city. Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, from the city of, of College Station Water Department, Jennifer Nation. She has the Waterful Wednesdays, and that's at 742. That's an interesting time, 742 uh, on, on this station and uh, every Wednesday. And that would be a good one to call about all kinds of things, as well as just to listen to for the things that, uh, that she offers. Uh, we have always got our, our farmer's markets that I like to support and plug. Uh, the uh, South Brazos County Farmer's Market is located across from Scott & White Clinic. And uh, so if you're heading out university to the bypass, Scott & White's on the right, right at the bypass. But just before that, you turn right down the street toward the south, and uh, you'll find them in a parking lot across the way. Uh, and they have all kinds of things available. They go from noon to 5 p.m., noon to 5 p.m. Uh, on Tuesday, and then they're back there again on Friday. So Tuesdays and Fridays, you can go to a farmer's market from noon to 5 here locally. 
uh, on Fridays uh, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. out on Tabor Road. Uh, there is a farmer's market that is growing. Of course, they're selling produce and, and a lot of other things as well. And uh, the, I think they also may have some hydroponic greens there uh, as, as well. But anyway, uh, that's 10 a.m. to 2 on Fridays. The actual address is 2861 FM 974 called Farm Fridays. And then there is the Brazos Valley Farmers Market every Saturday from 8 to noon, and that's downtown in Bryan at Main and 21st Street. Uh, and uh, they, again, have many vendors, and some food trucks are usually there. Uh, so there is no excuse for not having uh, local to reasonably local uh, grown stuff, being able to look your farmer in the eye, if you will, and uh, talk to them about how they grow things. And, and uh, uh, I just, I enjoy that. We love to go to the farmer's market. Uh, there's a baker there that does a great job too. Uh, he, he sets up there and we're always heading back in there for some fresh baked bread. Uh, I think that covers those. Now on, um, let's see, Friday and Saturday, March 17th and 18th, that's a ways out, but I'll go ahead and mention it now. Uh, there is an herbal forum and a plant sale out at the Festival Institute in Round Rock. And you can go online to herbsocietypioneer.org, herbsocietypioneer.org, and click on the events and find out. March 17th and 18th, I've been to it before. It's, it's, it's worth a drive out. It's a great, uh, great way to sprint, spend, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday. Uh, you can learn a lot about herbs, too, in the process. On March 18th at the John Ferry Garden, they're having their budding out plant sale and festival. And that's down in Hempstead, the John Ferry Garden. Um, let's see, their admission for non-members is $5 and members are free. So there'll be vendors as well uh, there uh, with food options. There'll even be music involved on Saturday, March 18th. And then I'm going to stretch it all the way out because this one's far out there, but you need to be planning for it and write it on your calendar and circle it twice. The Brazos County Master Gardeners are having their annual plant sale March 25th, Saturday, March 25th. It's the main sale of the year. Uh, they'll have annuals and perennials and vegetables and herbs all grown in the Brazos Valley. Uh, the Master Gardeners also do something that's really cool. They, they dig up some of their favorite plants at home, maybe divide a, a clump of something or, uh, you know, and, and they bring it to the sale and it's called the passel along plants. And these are things that are thriving here in Brazos County. Uh, and it's kind of fun to be able to visit with the master gardeners, ask them about the plant and, uh, and purchase plants there. And all the, all the proceeds for that, by the way, go toward our AgriLife Extension programming uh, that the master gardeners do. Uh, they support us uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, not just in volunteer time, although that is, a, that is a critical way that master gardeners in whatever county you're in uh, support the AgriLife Extension office. And that's what's happening out and about. Uh, let's see, I think we go here. I want to talk a little bit about vegetables uh, today, uh, and then I'm going to go back to emails. Uh, if you'd like to call, oh, we're running out of time. I better, I better go fast here. I'm going to try to catch a couple of emails uh, before the end of the show, and I'll save vegetables for next week. Susan asks, can I recommend some varieties of roses similar to the cut flowers in the flower shop that will grow here? and also real sunflowers. 
Well, uh, there are a lot of varieties of rose cut flowers, and I can't off the top of my head tell you just you need to get this one or that one. Uh, if I'm going to reply to your email with a little more information that I can give in a short time. As far as the sunflowers are concerned, you can buy seed packets. You can also buy sunflower transplants. Uh, but just remember that if you're going to use them for cut flowers, some types don't produce pollen, so they don't drop stuff all over your table. And so you would want to get that type. And in a seed catalog, they will tell you if that's the case. Uh, because they, uh, you know, that's that's a big deal. All right. Well, Tad, I'm not able to get to yours uh, today, but I will pick up your email uh, next week on uh, Thursday. And uh, I thank you all for listening. Garden Success is here every Thursday. Tell your friends we're here from noon to one. We're also available by podcast on whatever type of podcast app you use. Uh, they're on. We're on most of them, and so you can tell your friends to listen on that as well. We appreciate you being here and look forward to next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.